Good morning. Good morning, Alethea. How are you guys doing this morning? Um, if you have kids that are participants in Alethea Junior, this is the time to send them on their way. I don't know where the Alethea Junior folks, oh, right back here. So if you have kids, they're waving at us so it's easy to find them. All right, so good morning. Like I said, once again, my name is David Dominguez. For those of you who don't know me, I am one of the deacons here at Aletheia Church, and I have the privilege of preaching this morning. If you've been with us the past few months, you know we just completed our journey through the book of Judges, and next week we will begin our Advent series, which leads you to probably question, what, what are you preaching on this morning, David? Well, my goal this morning is to bridge us from our study in Judges to our study in our, our Advent series. And I'm going to do that by talking about the incarnation, okay? And I want us to see how um, the incarnation is the fulfilled deliverance that we saw glimpses of in the book of Judges. And I will be using that word quite a bit, so I figured I would define it before we really get started. When I say the incarnation, I mean the second person of the Trinity, God the Son taking on human flesh. Pretty basic definition there. We will have three major points that we'll be going over today. The first will be uh, what led to the incarnation. What, what was humanity's state before Jesus comes? The second will be the necessity of the incarnation. And lastly, we will see the purpose of the incarnation. So let's go ahead and get started. Like we just saw in, in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, we see that God has sent forth his son, but where, where was humanity before that? And in order to give us a good picture or report of humanity, I want to use the, the book of Judges to give us a report card of sorts with regards to humanity's status. And if you're asking, why does David use the word report card? Well, I've been scarred by that word quite a few times. When in, in my last year of uh, school, of, of grad school, we have two 12-week rotations. That's, like, that's kind of like a week. everything leads, leads up to that. And in these 12-week rotations, we get a midterm and a final report card. And a report, the report card is very clear. It's just trying to, to tell you what you're competent in and what you're not very competent in. And we had a professor that she would always tell us, hey, you know, I get, I get this feedback. I get, the, I get your scores at midterm and at final. And if your score is below this level, I will drive, fly, drive a jet, whatever I need to do to get to where you are, I will get there. We will get together with your instructor. We'll, we'll set up an intervention plan so that we can turn this around, okay? So, so let's, look, let's look at humanity's report card, and then we can, we can kind of make an assessment of if we need an intervention or not. And, and I'll, I'll be relying heavily on judges because we've, we've been in that book quite a bit recently, right? All right, so humanity's report card, according to judges, tells us that we rebel all the time, that we love to do what is right in our own eyes. The beginning of the, of the book starts with that phrase, and you almost expect that by the end of the book, there'll be something different. 
But as we saw last week with Kevin, the book ends with the exact same phrase, that, that humanity just seeks to do what is right in their own eyes. And even when we see God graciously deliver his people through judges, before, before it's too long, we find Israel again doing what is evil and what is right in their own eyes. It's, it's, it's not la- long-lasting repentance. It's, it's, it's short bits of, of some repentance, but eventually they just they can't get out of their own way. And we even wonder, will, will the punishment that, that comes to them bring about lasting repentance? And the answer is, is just a resounding no. We're, 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 we're very disappointed if that's what we expected to find at the end of the book of Judges because the answer is no. And, and, and we're reminded that humanity seeks to do what is right in their own eyes. And the author of the book of Judges alludes that this is because they don't have a king. And, and Kevin talked a lot about this last week, but The real tragedy about the Israelites is if you continue to read the Old Testament, these same same people will continue to seek out lordship in their man-made idols and even in their earthly kings who also will disappoint them. And the reality that starts to seep in is that this report card is not just for the Israelites in the book of Judges, but it's actually the same report card that we receive. We find ourselves doing the same things. When we were going through the book of Judges, at first you read these stories and you're like, oh, that's so outlandish. And then you get into your gospel community groups and you're like, wow, I'm actually exactly like Micah. It's, 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 we relate with these characters more than we would like to admit. And I want to use the, the story of Micah and the Levite because it's, it's one that we just recently went through. And when we go through this story, we see how Easily, Micah just gives in to the convenience of, of serving and worshiping a God that he creates himself out of silver. And we're like, how, how could he do that? How could he fall for that? And then on top of that, we see him convince a Levite who is supposed to be devoted to temple service, who is not supposed to be looking for an inheritance, to give in to idolatry. When, when we expect him to know the Ten Commandments and that God has explicitly said that that is not allowed, and we, we look at the Levite and we say, how would you give in just for 10 pieces of silver and a shirt? And, and sure, maybe we don't make idols out of silver. Maybe we don't commit idolatry for 10 pieces of silver. But we kneel down before our idols of success, our idols of career, idols of money and sex, and the list can go on and on. And so if I'm painting a grim picture, it's because it is a true picture of where humanity finds themselves before the coming of Jesus. Our report card reads straight Fs, and we need an intervention. Humanity, according to Galatians, this this status is is called cursed. We're under a curse, and the curse is the law. The law itself is not the curse. We just can't keep it. Look at what Galatians 3.10 says. It says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So we are under a curse because we can't keep God's perfect law. And so we are at God's mercy. We need him to show us grace. And so our passage begins, in the fullness of time, God sends his son. And this, this phrase, the, the fullness of time, is, is an interesting one because theologians have kind of developed some ideas as to what it could mean. So in, in some ways, some point to just the historical context that led up to the coming of Jesus. They'll point to things like roads were better. There was a, a centralized language. Um, other theologians just point to this being a predetermined time that God had set out to send his son. But if we look at the, uh, at, at the Greek word used there that is translated fullness, I think it paints a, a better picture of what's going on. So I, I will try to, to, to give you that definition with, with a picture. So I wish I had an actual cup of water here. But imagine if, a, if I had a cup of water right here that was full to the top. We would say that that cup is full. There's, there's a word that means that. The cup is full of water. The word used here, which means fullness, the picture that it's trying to depict is not just a cup full of water, but a cup that is full of water that is under a tap so that water continues to flow into it and it's actually overflowing. And so we start to get a better glimpse of what this term fullness means. At, at what, it, what it is referring to is that history is overflowing with anticipation. All of history from creation, from Genesis on, has been anticipating and converging in that moment when Jesus Christ would be born. We see glimpses of this even in, as, as early as Genesis 3, right? We, we see this being pointed. This is the point that all history is converging onto. And in the fullness of time is the moment in history where everything changes, the eternal enters into time. The divine takes on flesh. And what led up to that was our need of a savior. The fact that we were under the curse of a law that we could not keep and we needed divine rescue. But the question still, the next question still kind of poses itself. So God sends his son, but was it, was it actually necessary for Jesus to come in the flesh? Which I think is a valid question, and we're going to try to answer that next. In, in verse 4 and 5, we're told that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And what's interesting is you start to see this corresponding language between those whom Jesus came to redeem and Jesus, right? He was born under the law because the people he came to redeem were under the law. He was born of a woman because who did he come to redeem? Humanity. And although the book of Galatians doesn't really flesh this out to its fullest extent, luckily the book of Hebrews does. And in Hebrews chapter two, look at what it says about the necessity of Jesus coming in the flesh. And I'm gonna read verse 14, 16 and 17. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And then in verse 16 and 17, it says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So this fleshes it out a little bit more, right? Jesus needed to be truly human because he was set out to deliver humanity from the consequences of their sin. And the consequences of our sin was nothing less than death. That's what we deserve. The Bible says that we've all sinned and that the the wages of sin is death. And luckily the verse doesn't end there, right? It tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, right? And so he had to be like those whom he was set out to redeem. He, He could only in some ways redeem those whom he represented. And the logic that Hebrews employs is using angels as an example, it says, if he, was, if he was set out to redeem angels, logically, he would have taken on the form of an angel. But he didn't. He, he took on the form of a man because he was set out to redeem humanity. And this representative language is employed throughout uh, Scripture. Uh, a few other places that we see it is 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, that says, For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then in Romans 5, 19, it echoes the same sentiment. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so here we see the examples of Adam contrasted with Christ. In in Adam, humanity falls, and then in Christ, humanity is ultimately redeemed. And I feel like instinctively, we understand this, this necessity of uh, representation. And I'm going to use a silly example that should not be completely applied uh, logically back into theology, but I think it will help us understand this. I don't know if anybody here has ever tried to call the IRS and speak to a human being. It is incredibly, if you're laughing, you've probably tried this. It is incredibly difficult. They have these amazing, amazing automated robots that are doing their very best to solve your problems and to stop you from speaking to any human being on the other side of the phone. And if you stay on the line long enough, you will find yourself very frustrated and saying things to robots that we really should, should not be saying to robots. And, and what you start to realize at some point in that three-hour gap where you're just waiting, waiting to find another human being on the phone is that your problem was created by a human being. And no matter how hard that little robot tries, he can't fix it. You need another human being to help you solve the problem that a human being got you into. And so we instinctively begin to to understand that Jesus had to be truly human. And I hope that when you leave here today, especially this second point, isn't just one that goes into the, the category of content. Oh, yes, Jesus had to be man. Let me just put that in the back of my mind. Now I know a good Uh, answer to trivia in the future. But it is a truth that should 
encourage us endlessly. The fact that God, who needs nothing, absolutely nothing, would humble himself to be like us so that he could redeem us from the consequences of our sin is a reality that should encourage us every single day that we're on this earth and for eternity. And I want to, I, I'm using a lot of language of had and, and, and necessity, and I don't want that to take away from the reality that the Bible tells us that, yes, God, he had to be made like his brothers, but he did that out of love, right? The, if, if we look at the scriptures, what it tells us is not just that God was, got his arm twisted and, 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 and had to do this, but instead that God sending his son is the ultimate proof of his love. It tells us that God sends his son because for, for God so loved the world. And then it, we're also told that, that God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. So even if it's a necessity, it was a necessity out of love. And the fact that Jesus was willing to humble himself, take on flesh, and was willing to die so that he could redeem us, us who were under the law, who deserved death. And the reality is he just couldn't redeem those whom he did not represent. And this is, this is where the, the person of Jesus, the, the full person of Jesus, truly God and truly man, is so necessary for the gospel. Because we needed a human to redeem humanity from our inability to keep the law. We, we needed him to, to die, right? Because we know that with, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Galatians 3 puts it this way. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And it explains what, what that entails. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus takes on death so that we may no longer die. And at the same time, so we needed him to be truly, truly human. At the same time, we needed him to be truly God, to be perfect, to be able to withstand the wrath of God, and to be able to have a sacrifice that was of sufficient worth. If we, if we look at Hebrews 10, it contrasts the sacrifice of Jesus with the old sacrificial system. And it explains that in the old sacrificial system, priests had to make sacrifices for themselves because they were sinful. And then they had to repeatedly make sacrifices for the people because the sacrifice was not sufficient to cover their sin. But the language that we see when we, when we, when we read Hebrews 10 about the sacrifice of Jesus is completely different. Look at what verse 10 says, Hebrews 10, verse 10. It says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And then in verse 12 it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God unlike the old sacrificial system, Jesus is sufficient. Unlike our performance, Jesus is sufficient. Unlike our man-made idols that we develop, 
Jesus is sufficient. And even unlike our earthly kings and leaders, we have and serve a king who is sufficient. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man. And this reality that he's truly God, truly man is, is encouraging to us because his sacrifice is sufficient for us and our shortcomings, but it also means that he's the perfect person to mediate between us and God. Second, I mean, we just read, we just read in, in Hebrews how this reality should, should lead us to, to come before God's throne with confidence. And, and in 2 Timothy 5 and 6, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as ransom for all. And so it becomes clear and apparent that Jesus taking on flesh was necessary because out of love, he had set out to redeem humanity who was under the law. He had set out to redeem us. I hope that when you, when you hear that phrase, humanity was under the weight of sin and couldn't keep the law, we don't say, oh, that stinks for humanity. That's you, that's me. We were under the weight of the law, and so it was necessary for Jesus to take on flesh. And it all, this all leads to the final point. What is, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of Jesus coming in the flesh? And Galatians 4 tells us, answers this question for us. It says in, in verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. To put it simply, the purpose of the incarnation is so that we might be adopted and so that we can be called children of God. And at this point, you're asking yourself, well, why, why do I want to be adopted? Why do I want to be a part of God's family? Maybe I haven't been clear enough with regards to what the alternative status of humanity is. And so I want to be very clear with that. The, the alternative is to remain under a cursed status under the law because we can't keep it perfectly. And the consequences of that is eternal death. When the Bible talks about the reality of humanity and when we go from relying on our own good works and our own life's works to the reality of of, of, of submitting and, and putting our faith and trust in Jesus. It talks about that we're going from being slaves to sin. That's the reality that we are in before Jesus. We are chained to the perfection that is demanded of humanity by the law. And we are ultimately described as being spiritually dead. So it is in that context that we are then called 
to be children of God, to be freed from the weight of the law because Christ has already kept it perfectly. We are, we are told that we are given eternal life through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. That, that's why, that's why the, the beauty of the gospel is, is that God would take on flesh and atone for our sins to make us his family. It's, it's, a, it's a no, in, in, in language of business, it's a, it's a no, no-brainer deal from our end. And all that we're asked to do is to place our faith in the work of Jesus. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And if that is our reality, if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, his life and perfect ministry and death and burial and resurrection, then we are told that we are given the script of Jesus, that we can get to call God our father. That is, that is our reality. And it's, it's humbling, but it's what we celebrate here in this time of the year. This is what, this is what we celebrate in Christmas. That, that the God of, of this world who, who, who did not need anything came into an imperfect world, that, that he who needed no one desired a relationship with not just humanity but with you, and that he who is perfect had set out to make children out of sinners like me and you. And that's why Christmas is worth celebrating not because you're going to get some gift or something that, you, that it will eventually disappoint you, but because we have a gift in Christ that will never disappoint. We are called to trust and believe in him. And if your reaction is, well, I think I, I'm kind of a big deal, David. I, I think I'd be a catch to add to God's family. I, I kind of merit this situation. I have bad news for you. Because the Bible is pretty explicit that God resists the proud and instead gives grace to the humble. So my advice to you, if, if that's where you feel this morning, if you feel like, I actually merit adoption into God's family, I don't, I don't need Jesus, then I would tell you to humble yourself before God. Put your faith and trust in the work of Jesus because he is your only hope. He is my only hope. He is any human's only hope hope. And I promise you that if you do that, that he will never drive you away. John 6, 37, and, and this whole passage of, of John 6, Jesus explicitly says why he came into the, into the world. But I'm only going to read verse 37 where he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever who comes to me, I will never cast out. It's never too late to turn and put your faith and trust in Jesus and stop trusting in your own works or in your own uh, wit to earn your way into God's family. Because as Galatians reminded us, that is just a curse. If you're trying to earn your way into God's family, you, that's, that's just a curse that you will never be able to do. And this should ultimately change the, the way that we see and look at our obedience and the calls to obedience in the Bible. All of this leads up to this 
reality. This should be practical. When, when, when we look at texts where we're asked to be obedient and follow God's commands, we as Christians believe we should do that out of our status as children of God and not in order to earn our status as children. A few weeks ago, I was going over the same concept with some young people, uh, a youth group, and we were talking about uh, adoption and how that should change the way that we view obedience and, and, and calls to obedience in the Bible. And I had a young man right next to me, and I decided I was gonna use him as an example because he was talking a lot. And I said, what does this young man have to do in order to be his mother's son? And he kind of froze up for a second. And somebody across the room said, oh, he has to obey his mom. And everybody just started laughing. And I said, why are you guys all laughing? Would he be considered his mother's son if he had to obey her? And they all said no, because he's not very obedient. But the reality is that, that with that same logic, none of them are actually their parents' children because none of them are very obedient. And in a moment of, of clarity while they're all laughing, the young man turns to me and says, David, I, I don't have to be anything. I just am. I'm, I just have to be. I'm my mom's son. And I said, you, you got it. You understand it. This is the reality. We, if you ask yourself, what do I have to be in order to be adopted into God's family? The reality is you don't have to be anything. Jesus was already everything that you could not be. He has already accomplished everything that you could not accomplish for yourself. And so all we do is put our faith and trust in his perfect work. That is how we merit our adoption. When God sees us, we're adopted not because of your list of, of merits and your GPA and all these great things you do, but because he sees the sacrifice and life of his perfect son. And this should be a freeing concept, not to, not to push us to, to desire to, to do what we want in our own eyes, but instead to realize that we have the privilege of living out a life as God's children because of the work of Jesus. We now live to do good works in order to, one, mimic our, our prototype, which is Christ, but also because we are God's children. We, we behave a certain way because that is our father, and we want to represent him well, and we want to make him proud, not in order to coerce him into adopting us. That's just not the reality that scripture points us to. And if you know me, you know I love Titus chapter three. And I think Titus chapter three, verses four through seven, but I'm gonna read through eight today, gives us a good understanding of how the, the, the flow of ideas in our, in our lives should work, of our adoption and then our reality of needing to focus on doing good works. So we're gonna read that. Verse four says, for when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, this is referring to Jesus coming, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs 
according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we're told that we are saved not because of our works, but instead we are saved according to his own mercy and that we're justified by grace. And then we see this adoption language because we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then the passage ends with saying, so those who have believed in God should be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we're justified, we're adopted as heirs, and that should naturally flow into us being serious about good works. It doesn't say, oh, and so you should not care about your actions or the way that you live. Clearly, that's not, it's not the case. But we do those things flowing out of our reality of being adopted into God's family. And so if you're here this morning and you're hearing all of this and you say, that, that's just not a reality for me, I want you to know that it can be. You don't have to fix your entire life, get everything together, and then come to, that, logically that doesn't even make sense. If, if you're injured and someone says, hey, you should probably heal up a little bit before you go to the hospital, you'd look at them and say, who is this person? The reality is if you want to be part of God's family, you just need to come to Christ, put your faith in his work because that's the only way we can merit adoption. And if, if you're interested in that, if you, if you, if you don't know and, and want to ask questions, I'd encourage you to talk to whoever you came with this morning. Find me, find one of the elders. There's, there's so many people in this church that have experienced the adoption into God's family and would love to walk anybody through that. And so that leads to the, the second part of that. You know, if you're here this morning and, and you, you, you realize that's, that's my reality, I am a child of God. I've been adopted into his family through the perfect work of Jesus. Then reflect it. Live that out that your actions and your words would reflect the fact that you are no longer a slave to sin, but are instead freed from sin through Christ. That you're no longer fatherless and hopeless, but instead have a good father whom you will spend eternity with. It has to naturally change the way that we view and live our lives. So as I try to, to summarize what we've we've gone over this morning, our human sin and failure is what led up to the incarnation. We, we needed an intervention. And so God sent forth his son, born of a woman, truly man, so that he could redeem humanity. He came to this world, lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and eventually ascended on high. And now, today, through faith in the perfect work and ministry of Christ, we have been redeemed. And we too can be called children of God. And, and I understand that this familial language will have different connotations to every individual in the room. 
Some of us had good, good families, and this resounds in that way. Some of us had not great family structures, and so that might, that might almost be off-putting with this language. But the reality that I want to make clear is that this is a family unlike any other. When, if we look at Revelation, we see that there will only be joy that death will be no more. Even, even, even in our good family structures, eventually a family member passes away and we, we, we feel this gap or missing piece of us when that family member is gone. And the reality is in this family, in the family of God, ultimately we will spend eternity together. Death will be no more. Death will, will, will not even be part or, or will be able, even able to touch this family. It's like any family that we've ever been in. And that's good news. So I'm gonna leave you this morning with three charges. And I'm gonna have the, the band come up because Stephen's gonna lead us through communion. But the th- my three charges to you are, first, be encouraged. The reality is that God loves you and the incarnation proves that. He was willing to take on flesh and humble himself in order to redeem humanity. Second, be thankful because you've been adopted into God's family, not from your own merit, but through the merit of Jesus. And lastly, be eager because as long as you're here on this earth, we should pursue lives that honor and make much of Jesus And as we talked a lot about the work of Jesus and what he accomplished for us, we don't want to lose sight of the person of Jesus who is worth everything and deserves our worship, even if he had not come to redeem us. He's that good. He deserves our eternal worship. So I I hope that you leave here today encouraged. I hope that you leave here seeking out to live lives as children of God because that's our status in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we can call you our Father, that we can come before you with confidence through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. I pray that this can radically change and encourage us as we go throughout this week, and that ultimately, ultimately we can live lives that make you proud, that reflect our Savior well, and that make much of Jesus in everything we do and everywhere we go. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.